Today we're going to begin a four-week survey of how God has worked from eternity past and is working into eternity future to reconcile a chosen people for himself uh, through the atoning work of Christ on the cross. So that's where, we'll, where we will be going the next today and the next three weeks. So let's That better. It's just kind of like really breathy, you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah, <laughs> as far as we know. Yep. Okay. Yep. I think we're good. It's nothing. It's probably nothing that can. He said moving it down maybe will help, so I don't breathe right into it. Is that better? Okay. Okay. So. Um, okay, well, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to, to study your word, to see what you have to say about this topic of salvation. There uh, is really not too many more important things that we could be thinking about uh, this Sunday morning, so we're grateful that you have brought us to this, this point in time. We pray that you would give us um, eyes to see uh, your work in salvation as glorious and that it would stir our hearts with worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's start off by thinking about this word of salvation, right? A common word, particularly in the Christian culture, um, but a word that poses a problem to our postmodern culture. What is problematic about the word salvation in our current cultural climate? That's why I asked it. Nick. Okay, absolutely. Good point. Yep. Yeah. Good. Good point. So Frank just pointed out, and I'm repeating this just for the recording, that uh, salvation implies that you've done something wrong or that there's some problem that exists. Um, and then Nick pointed out that salvation assumes that there, you know, there's likely only one way uh, to be saved, um, which goes against our pluralistic tendencies in our culture. Absolutely. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's an affront to pride, which is, which is the predicament, isn't it? So, the doctrine of salvation assumes some things, doesn't it? It assumes that each of us are in a predicament, specifically under God's wrath. That's not exactly a popular topic. Um, and this predicament is of such a nature that I, the individual, cannot deliver myself from it, which is an affront to our pride. Um, and to make matters worse, the predicament that I find myself in is a matter of my own doing, which is our sin nature, right? So for a culture that has lost uh, the vocabulary of words like sin or holiness, um, there really are no conspirators, only victims, right? So the fundamental problem for the postmodern is always out there, never in here. And the result, you know, or as you pointed out, this is the result of pride, right? And really can be traced all the way back in the biblical story of the garden with Adam and Eve. So Adam was the first person to play the victim card, wasn't he? Right? This woman that you gave me, right? She gave me the fruit and I ate. Yeah. <clears throat> Blame shifting right from the outset, right? And furthermore, the postmodern culture says that the most inauthentic thing that you could do to yourself is to deny yourself your true desires. Rather, you should express yourself, be you. And this, of course, flies directly in the face of the call of Christ to deny yourself Put to death your sinful desires, and only in doing this can you truly find your true identity, an identity rooted in the Creator. But just as our, our first parents in the garden tried to live for themselves apart from God, so too does every offspring of Adam and Eve. We naturally see ourselves as, dependent, as independent creatures, the authors of our own story, the judges of our own deeds, the masters of our own destinies. 
right? So we've been speaking about this postmodern problem this morning, but really the postmodern problem is just one expression in this particular moment in human history of the human problem, which the Bible calls sin. But as sin has vanished from the American mind, so has God, or at least uh, the God of the Bible. So it's not really until we've wrestled with our own depravity and understood our own sinfulness that we can really understand that evil does not primarily reside outside, but within. Then we can start to understand the necessity of the biblical doctrine of salvation. I've got some quotes there on your handout there under the introduction. I like the way that Spurgeon put it. He said, he who thinks lightly of sin will think lightly of the Savior. Or as Thomas Watson, the Puritan said, till sin be bitter, Christ be not sweet. So my prayer this morning is that this will not be primarily an academic exercise, but that the Holy Spirit will help us see with renewed eyes the glorious doctrine of salvation so that we will not think lightly of the one who has saved us. Or to put it another way, the goal of studying the doctrine of salvation is not to merely fill, fill our heads with knowledge, but to fill our hearts with worship. So let's dig in with that in mind, okay? So how does salvation happen? What happens to someone who gets saved? What are we saved from exactly? So this brings us to Roman numeral two in your handout, the order of salvation. So last semester in part one of our systematic class, good morning, Sean, uh, we talked about the work of redemption that Christ accomplished for his people, specifically in his perfect obedience, right? Obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross. And this redemption was the price that Christ paid to buy back his people from our captivity to sin. So when someone redeems something, they're paying a price to get something of theirs back. Think about how a pawn shop works, for example, right? So Christ bought back what was rightfully his through his work on the cross. We had pawned ourselves for the fleeting pleasures of sin. Christ has bought us back at the cost of his own life, and so we are his. Today, though, we're going to, and over the next few weeks, we, we will unpack uh, the way that God applies that objective reality, salvation, to individual lives. And we will see, hopefully, over the next four weeks that salvation truly is of the Lord from beginning to end. So God not only accomplished something on the cross, he also applies the effects of the cross and the benefits of the cross to individual lives. It's also helpful to acknowledge from the outset that when the Bible speaks of salvation, it doesn't speak of one simple, indivisible act. Rather, it speaks of salvation comprising a series of acts and processes. So I think for many of us, kind of in our common vernacular, uh, we use salvation often as shorthand for conversion. And while that's not necessarily wrong, conversion is just one, as we'll see, one series and one, one act um, that we'll see in the order of salvation. It's merely one step of a much broader work. So theologians sometimes will talk about a tripart salvation, tri meaning three. I've personally found uh, thinking about salvation this way to be helpful. So you, Christian, have been saved, are being saved, and one day will be saved from the consequences of sin. So kind of thinking in those three categories, in what way have you already been saved, past tense? In what way have you been saved? Been justified? What? Yeah, and a little bit more. Saved from the penalty of sin, Frank says, yeah. Okay, three time zones, I like that. Yeah, that's good, yeah. In what way are you being saved? Mm-hmm. Sanctification, right? So you are, you are being saved from the power of sin, right? So we've been saved from the penalty of sin, the sanctification is the process of overcoming sin in our lives. 
growing in Christ-likeness? And then in what way will you be saved, future tense? What's the theological word for that? Yeah, glorification. One day you will be saved from the very presence of sin in your life, right? So it's helpful to think in the scope of salvation in those, those three categories at least. Okay, so given that the application of salvation or redemption is not a one-time action, but rather an act, a series of acts in a process, we should not be surprised to find it following a certain distinct order with an arrangement of various steps, okay? Now, to be clear, there's no single verse of Scripture that mentions every act or process in this order of salvation, okay? Instead, we're going to take a careful consideration of several different passages uh, that give us a framework for the order of salvation. But to start with, turn to Romans 8, 29 and 30. Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. This has sometimes been referred to as the golden chain of salvation because you have these interlocking links of processes here. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so we see from Romans 8 that predestination precedes what? Calling. And calling precedes? Good. And then justification precedes? Okay. And intuitively, this makes sense, right? I mean, God could not, for example, glorify a sinner that had not been justified. So there is kind of a natural, logical order of how salvation is applied to people. So the order of salvation that will guide our discussion today and in the subsequent uh, weeks is there on your handout under, under Roman numeral 2. So election... The gospel call, regeneration, those are the first three that we'll discuss this morning. And then conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, death, glorification. Anybody ever thought about death as a step in the process of salvation? So we should note that some aspects of salvation are entirely up to God, like election and regeneration. Others, like conversion, require human activity along with God's activity. That would be synergistic as opposed to monergistic, you know, entirely up to God. Uh, examples would be repentance and faith, gifts that we have to respond to. Okay. The other thing I would point out is that this order of salvation isn't strictly chronological, meaning, meaning with respect to time, okay? So it doesn't necessarily mean that first this happens and then this happens and then this happens. For example, the moment we repent and place our trust in Christ, God justifies and adopts us and begins the process of sanctification all right at once, right? Um, we're obviously regenerated before we're glorified, though, so there is a chronological event there. So what, what I'm primarily saying here is that the salvation is one of logical order uh, more than chronological order, although there are some, some overlaps there. Any questions on, on this up to this point? Okay. So today we're going to cover the initial process, of, uh, initial process of salvation by looking at the doctrines of election, which is where we'll spend most of our time, the gospel call, and then regeneration. So Roman numeral three on your handout, election predestination. As has been said before, salvation begins with God. So if you want to jot this down, here's our working definition of election. I'll say it once, it's big, and then I'll slow it down and give it to you again. An act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, 
but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Okay, so let me give that to you in chunks. An act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved. Not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Everybody get that? You may need it repeated. All right, so with that definition in front of you, what, what do we see here? God chooses a specific and definite number of people to save. He guaranteed their salvation, won at the cross by Jesus, and granted the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection to their lives. If left to himself, man would remain forever in his sin because it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Romans 3.10 and Paul's riffing on a psalm in that, Psalm 14, I think. How does this verse differ from how many Christians often think about unbelievers in relation to God? How does the teaching of Romans 3.10 differ from how many Christians think about unbelievers' current relation, relationship to God? There's even a church movement named after this misconception. Yeah. You may have heard of the seeker-sensitive church movement, right? Where, you know, we want, we want to arrange our, well, well-meaning, I would say, misconstrued, but well-meaning. I mean, certainly we want to be uh, sensitive to unbelievers that are in our midst on Sunday mornings, but gearing the service and the programs and things around People out, the assumption is that there's all these unbelievers out here who are looking for God and they just, they can't find him. And if we just are winsome and welcome them into our presence, that they'll, they'll become believers. But what does Romans 3.10 says explicitly at the end of that verse? No one, no one seeks God, right? So the, the picture is, you know, here's God. If you're looking down from like a, you know, an 30,000 view and everybody's running from him right everyone there's no one that's going that's going back to god they're running to god and then in god's grace through his election he turns one back and turns another back and turns another back so nothing but a mighty supernatural act on the part of god can rescue sinners in this condition if they are to be rescued if we are to be rescued God must make the first move. And praise God, this is precisely what he does. He sovereignly rescues a rebel sinner out of the kingdom of darkness and transfers him into the kingdom of light, Colossians 1.13. So I wonder, do you think of your salvation, beloved, in this way? He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son where you have redemption and your sins forgiven. We would do well to preach this gospel to ourselves every morning, right? And remind one another frequently. So this divine rescue plan was initiated in the mind of God before the foundations of the world. And then he sent Christ into the world to the cross with a list of his intended targets. And Christ did not lose one of them. That's the doctrine of election or what is sometimes called predestination. The apostles, uh, are ref- or the elect, I should say, are referred to at least 25 times in the New Testament. So that's kind of the overview. Now let's look at the Bible uh, for ourselves to see these things in Scripture. Turn to Acts 13, 48. Yes, Acts 13, 48. Mm-hmm. 
So Luke writes that when the Gentiles heard the message, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So what is the operable phrase for election? It doesn't, the word election is not used or predestined, but what is the operable phrase in this passage for election? Yeah, appointed to eternal life, right? And what is the outcome for those who were appointed to eternal life according to Acts 13, 48? They believed the gospel message, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's there's so I think about like John one where it says says as many who received him, which sounds a lot like accepting Christ. So there is a sense in which we do accept Christ. We talked about earlier about conversion is you know a synergistic act. We have to exercise faith and repentance. Um, but often I agree with you. The emphasis can be, you know, if we're not. If we're not aware of this other aspect, the emphasis can and has, unfortunately, um, been placed on primarily the decision-making of the individual. Yeah. And then it didn't help that we have altar calls and hymns that stir up or meant to stir up emotions towards that end and things like that. Of a pre- yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it got a little skewed, right? That's a good point. Um, look at, let's turn to Ephesians chapter one, verses four and five. Maybe Paul's loftiest, uh, exposition of predestination here. Ephesians one, four and five. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will so what two actions do you see ascribed to god in these verses He chose us, he predestined us, are the two verbs there attributed to God. What's the significance of the timing of these actions when they took place? Yeah, before the foundation of the world. And what's, what's significant about that, the timing of that? Mm-hmm. So Paul's emphasizing, as Frank pointed out, the decisiveness of God's actions in salvation, not ours, right? What credit do you have for anything before the foundations of the world that took place today? Zero. Yes. I'm guessing you're asking me that question because someone has asked you that before or you've heard that come up, right? It's a valid, yeah, common view. Where I'm actually going to address that exact question. So we, I promise you, yeah, that's good. I'm glad you're thinking in those terms. Yeah, we will, we will address that specifically because that is certainly, uh, certainly worth talking about. Any other questions on the Ephesian passage? All right, flip over to 1 Thessalonians 1. Four and five. First Thessalonians one, four and five. No. You know, in, in Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I don't, that wasn't Paul's designation, but it could happen that way, didn't it? <laughs> so Paul writes, 
For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So how does Paul know that these Thessalonians are God's elect? Yeah, and because of their response to it, right? Right, they, they respond with full conviction, or we might say with faith in the gospel. So their faith in the gospel is evidence that they are elect, right? And then writing to the same church in his second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. That's 2 Thessalonians 2.13. So the implication, of course, is that God's electing love must be directed toward an individual before a response of saving faith is possible. Or to put it another way, no one possesses saving faith who wasn't first predestined by God. So God's choice of giving certain individuals salvation rests solely on his sovereign will. It's an unconditional election. We don't do anything to deserve it. So this is the answer to Sam's question. His choice, God's choice to save particular sinners was not based on any foreseen response or obedience on their part, such as faith and repentance. To say that God elected people from before the foundations of the world by peering into the future to see which individuals would respond on their own in faith and repentance is to completely neuter the word predestined. It becomes a virtually meaningless doctrine. That's my answer to your question, Sam. (laughs) Yeah, as we already said, no one's coming back to God on their own initiative. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that, yeah, that would be another way to address that question as well. So God gives faith and repentance to each individual whom he chooses. Any act of obedience in faith and repentance is the result, not the cause of God's choosing. That's the teaching of Scripture. You will never find Scripture saying anywhere, can I be more strong, That our faith was the reason that God chose us. That type of reasoning is a human invention. Salvation is all of grace. Thus, God's choice of the sinner, not the sinner's choice of Christ, is the decisive factor in salvation. I think that's what Frank was getting at earlier. So you might reason with yourself in such a way. Why am I a Christian? Well, because I repented and believed. But that while true, only begs the question, why did you repent and believe? Because God chose me before the foundation of the world. If you dig deep enough into the whys of your salvation, you will always hit the rock-solid foundation of the sovereignty of God. That is the message of Scripture. We love God because He first loved us. We choose God because He first chose us. This is not only clear in the New Testament, by the way, but in the Old Testament as well. So what does the Old Testament have to say? We'll look at Deuteronomy 7. And as I said, this point on election is the longest. The other two won't be this lengthy. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 7. I'll let you land there before I read it. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. 
for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. So think about that reasoning for a moment. What is God saying? God's purpose in election was not based on Israel. It was based on God. And notice here specifically, it's based on God's love. So God is saying to Israel and to you, I chose you because I loved you. Now, we could just stop there for today, couldn't we? And just meditate on that truth for a while. I sometimes tell my children that I love them because they are mine. Beloved, God loves you because he has chosen to love you, because you are his. Not because of anything good in you or me does he love us. If you are in Christ, you are loved by God because of his sheer will of determination. That is why Paul can write in Romans 8, who can separate us from the love of Christ? The answer, of course, is no one. God's unconditional love for you, Christian, is built on the rock-solid doctrine of God's unconditional election. Don't separate the two. In the New Testament, back to Romans chapter 9, we see election explained nowhere more clearly than here. So Romans 9, verses 10 through 16. Romans 9, 10 through 16. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, see what Paul's doing there, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. But Esau I hated? Does that sound harsh? Unfair maybe? It does, right? And Paul anticipated that. He knew, right? But when we ask the question that Paul asks, is that unjust of God? We must answer with Paul, not at all. God could have rightly said, I hate both Esau and Jacob. And why would that be fair? Have you considered Jacob's life, especially in the early years? You'll see that his behavior is detestable. He's treacherous, a liar, an intentional deceiver, right? So the question of fairness is not, why would God hate a sinner like Esau, but rather, why would God love a sinner like Jacob or like you and me? And to extrapolate the question further, the real mystery isn't, why would God only save some, but why would God choose to save any at all? We all deserve eternal damnation. Like our analogy earlier, we have turned our backs to God and are running straight for the pits of hell Yet in God's love and mercy, he has planned to save some. And you, if you are in Christ, are a recipient of this undeserved love. So notice in this passage in Romans 9, God's purpose in election is being worked out even before Jacob or Esau were born, before they have done anything good or bad. God's election was not conditioned by their actions, but by his own sovereign will. Now, this can be hard for us to deal with, but that says really more about us in our current state of affairs than it does about God. So I was helped by something that Tim Keller points out, which is that different cultures in different places in different times embody different values, right? For example, in the Eastern cultures, um, they tend to value honor and utilize shame to motivate right behavior. And so in that type of culture, forgiveness is the scandal, A person in an honor-shame culture would be shocked by God's grace towards undeserving sinners. Whereas in our post-enlightened Western culture, we value individualism and self-determination. So, of course, Romans 9 is going to rub us the wrong way. We assume grace and are surprised by God's judgment. 
But that says more about us than it does about God. So we must be careful not to make God into our own image, but rather allow his word to define who he, who he is and who we are to be. A fur, furthermore, another common objection to the doctrine of election that is often voiced is that election means that unbelievers never really have a chance to believe, but the Bible simply does not support this objection. When people reject Jesus, he always puts the blame on their willful choice to reject him, not on anything decreed by God. In John 5.40, Jesus says, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And this is the consistent pattern in Scripture. Those who remain in their unbelief do so willingly. And the blame for such stubborn unbelief always lies with the unbeliever themselves, never with God. So let's just take a little bit of time to reflect here. What does unconditional election mean practically for us as Christians? What does unconditional election mean practically for us? Okay. It humbles us and magnifies God. Sam? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that should motivate us, right? It takes the it takes the pressure off, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Sean, I'll come back. Yeah, so Sean pointed out that it grounds the assurance of our salvation in something outside of us, namely God's sovereignty. Yeah. good it definitely shapes uh our evangelism amen anything else it certainly should cultivate humility a heart of gratitude as frank pointed out it makes our evangelism hopeful absolutely okay well let's move on to our second point the gospel call or the gospel invitation. So we've, we've established the fact that our salvation begins with God's choosing us. So now we must seek to understand how this salvation is worked out. And so we come to what is known as the gospel call. This is the second uh, point in the order of salvation. So without the gospel invitation or gospel call, no one would be saved. Consider, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Romans 10.14 Additionally, Paul tells the Thessalonians that God called them to salvation through the gospel or through our gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 However, it's important to note that the gospel call is one calling with two different aspects. The external and the internal call. So while a general external call goes out to all men, of which some reject, a stronger, effective internal call is given by God, who summons people to himself in such a way that they always respond in saving faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.29 that we read earlier says that those whom God predestined, he also called. 
As we can see, this calling is an effective calling and is an act of God that guarantees a response because, as Paul goes on to say, those who were called were also what? Justified and glorified. God calls men out of darkness into his wonderful light, 1 Peter 2.9. So as Christ's ambassadors, we are to call everyone to repent of their sins and trust in Christ, but we know that not everyone will respond to this outward gospel call. As Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen, Matthew 22.14. So only God can effectually call us to himself. In John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then again in the same chapter, verse 65, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So those of us who are Christians have experienced the outward call of the gospel and this inward effectual call from the Father. So I like to think of these two calls working together kind of like a chemical reaction. So if you have two inert chemical compounds kept apart in separate containers, nothing happens. But when you mix or combine the two together, you get combustion. In this analogy, we are responsible to issue the outward call of the gospel to all people. But unless the Father imparts the inward call, the outward call will fall on deaf ears. But when the Father does grant the inward call, coupled with a faithful gospel proclamation, The chemical reaction erupts and the flame of saving faith burns bright in the heart of a new believer. Thus, the evidence of that that a person has been chosen and called by God is faith in Jesus and repentance of sins, as we saw earlier in Thessalonians. So this is what Peter means when he tells God's elect to be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. 2 Peter 1.10, how do we make our calling sure? An election sure by examining our lives and seeing if they reflect the biblical teaching of a faithful response to the gospel, namely ongoing faith and repentance. Any questions on the gospel call? Okay, let's move to regeneration, our third point in the order of salvation. So we spent some time, a little bit of this, our time in our classes on the Holy Spirit talking about regeneration, but we'll dig in a little bit deeper this morning. When is a person considered to be regenerate? Before he hears the gospel in order to respond to it, or after he hears the gospel in effect of it? Well, we know from Scripture that regeneration is necessary if a person is going to respond to the gospel with saving faith. Yet in a strictly temporal sense, it can be difficult to determine the exact time, if not impossible, a person becomes regenerate. So don't stress yourself if you don't know the answer to that question regarding your own generation. We must say, however, that the preaching of the gospel generally coincides with a person becoming regenerated. A biblical example of this comes to us from Acts 10 with the household of Cornelius. It literally says, while Peter was still proclaiming the gospel, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. So we see kind of this simultaneous act of gospel proclamation and regeneration. So regeneration, here's your definition, is an instantaneous event in which the Holy Spirit works in us and enables us to have faith and to follow Christ. Regeneration is an instantaneous event in which the Holy Spirit works in us and enables us to have faith and to follow Christ. It is then followed by, as we'll see in the subsequent weeks, conversion and justification. So remember earlier how we talked about how some events in salvation are all God's doing, that is to say, monergistic. Regeneration is one of those such events. Man is completely passive in his own regeneration. He cannot give himself spiritual life. This is what baffled Nicodemus, right, when he was talking with Jesus in John 3. How can a man be born again? Man is completely passive in his own regeneration. Thus, regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit. And when people talk about being born again, what they're actually saying is that they have been regenerated. 
It's not only a New Testament doctrine. We see regeneration in the Old Testament. So flip over to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. This is God making promises about what he will do for his people in the new covenant. And I will remove remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice that it is God who is acting. I will do these things, he says. We see regeneration in the New Testament. For example, John 1.13 says that Christians were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is God who must take that first step in order to give us the ability to then repent and believe. So this is very important for us to understand. We need to be regenerated first before we can exercise saving faith. Many well-meaning Christians say that if you believe in Christ as your Savior, then you will be born again. But Scripture does not teach that order. For example, Acts 16, 14. Luke says of Lydia, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So first God opened her heart, then she was able to respond in faith. Now the time elapsed between regeneration and conversion may be a fraction of a second, but regeneration does precede faith. Another passage of regeneration, uh, another passage on regeneration from the New Testament is from today's sermon text, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. Paul describes God shining his light into our dark hearts in order to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So regeneration is the light coming on and a new believer seeing for the first time. And what does he see in that moment? According to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Anybody know? If you don't, you're about to find out in about an hour. Yeah, he's right. He sees the, yep, the, the light of the gospel and he sees the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the unregenerate person, when they're shown Jesus, either in the pages of Scripture or maybe in a faithful gospel proclamation, they look upon Jesus and they see, but they don't really see, do they? Right? It's like being nonplussed gazing at the Grand Canyon, okay? But when the heart is regenerated, this person is given new eyes and they see for the first time that Jesus really is compellingly beautiful and worthy of their worship and their submission to his lordship. They see Jesus as glorious and respond to him in belief. So what made the difference? The work of regeneration, and it is God's work. The Bible is clear that regeneration always produces fruit in the Christian life. As one former pastor of mine would say, the evidence of a changed life is a changed life. So let's, let's land this plane, okay? So we've talked today about election, gospel call, regeneration, And everything that follows in the order of salvation, it's all a packaged deal. You get all of it or none of it. God will not fail in the work of salvation, which is is why the Apostle Paul could write, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If it were up to the Philippian Christians, Paul could not have that confidence. If it was up to them to ensure that they made it to heaven, Paul could not be that confident, but because it's up to the Lord, he could write those words. Our redemption is authored and perfectly completed by God. Let me draw your attention in closing to our church covenant, which if you have your membership directory, it's on the inside front page of that. If not, you can reference this later. Um, But our church covenant begins with and acknowledges God's work in our salvation. It says, as those brought by the grace of God to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, having been united to him by his spirit 
and affirmed through church membership, we do now solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with one another. That God enabling us, dot, 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 and then we go on to list out the things that we will do in response to his work in our salvation. So I encourage you to think broadly about salvation in these biblical terms. Salvation is not just conversion. It is all the work of God from predestination to glorification and everything in between. As you read your Bibles, look and listen for the specifics of salvation in its pages. It's been said that the devil is in the details. I believe that the glory of salvation is in the details, right? So look, look at the words, the different ways that Paul talks about conversion or that Peter or John or Jesus. So look for those. I'm encouraged by each of you being here this morning. It's an evidence of God's grace in your life that you desire to know him more and to get up early on a Sunday morning on spring break to be here. We've got a little bit of time for questions, if anybody has any, or comments, or rotten fruit. Bad joke, sorry. I had a professor that used to say that at the end of every lecture. Questions, comments, rotten fruit? Yes. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Okay. Well, let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we are grateful that you have chosen us from before the foundation of the world. Lord, I pray that that truth, Lord, would shape our lives, that it would cultivate humility, uh, gratitude in our hearts, that it would empower our evangelism because we know that ultimately that salvation belongs to the Lord and not to us. We thank you for the work of regeneration in the lives of the believers in this body. We thank you for the faithful gospel proclamations that we hear week in and week out. And we thank you that your spirit works within that to redeem people for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.